from Radio Vermont, it's the Dave Graham Show on WDEV. It's your show about the people, places, and the issues that matter the most to you. Now here's your host, Dave Graham. Good morning, Vermont. It is Wednesday, September the 16th, 2020. So glad to have you with us this morning at WDEV's Dave Graham Show. We go from about a little after 9 to 11 o'clock every weekday morning here on the Friendly Pioneer. And uh, we have a good show lined up for you today. We're going to be talking with Julie Moore. She's the Secretary of the Agency of Natural Resources. Uh, she'll be our lead-off hitter in the first half hour here. She's going to be talking, I think, mainly about the governor's decision uh, to veto the Global Warming Solutions Act had strong support in the legislature, maybe even strong enough to do a veto override, we'll see. Um, and the other big uh, legislation that uh, Ms. Moore has been following recently has to do with Act 250. That has not cleared the legislature yet, and the governor was yesterday expressing some some concerns about items uh, that were originally in that bill that have been taken out and uh, may make it uh, too unpalatable for the governor to support going forward. We'll see, uh, see what Ms. Moore has to say about that in the uh, next little bit. Uh, first, I want to tell you <clears throat> about uh, what else is coming up on the program this morning. Yesterday, there was a big announcement from the White House about an agreement between Israel and and uh, two uh, Arab countries, the United Arab Emirates and Bahrain, in uh, along the Persian Gulf there in the Middle East, and uh, the uh, these uh, countries have agreed to open up. These Arab countries have agreed to open up diplomatic relations with Israel. Uh, apparently, uh, there's going to be improved access to the Al-Aqsa Mosque in, Jerus- mosque in Jerusalem. Uh, which is uh, said to be Islam's third holiest site, and that's been a bone of contention for decades now, so maybe there's progress there. The Palestinians still not included in any of this, uh, but we'll see if this really marks progress in the Middle East, at least in the view of Peter Henney. He's a professor at the University of Vermont who follows Middle Eastern politics quite closely, and we'll be speaking with him in the second half hour of the program. In the second hour... Uh, we're going to open the phone lines a bit. We're going to be uh, speaking with uh, Steve Pappas, uh, the editor and publisher of the Times Argus, and Rutland Herald. He has a very interesting editorial in the paper today talking about how the uh, the world's view of uh, President Trump was kind of dim when he first took office in uh, 2017 and is dimmer now. And uh, we're going to find out uh, from Steve why that seems to, to him to be so and uh, and talk about probably a few other issues, too, as we often do with our good friend Steve Pappas. All righty. Let's uh, get uh, Julie Moore into the conversation here. I believe she's on the line with us. She's the, as I mentioned, the Secretary of Natural Resources for the state of Vermont. And Julie Moore, thank you very much for joining me this morning. Good morning, Dave. It's a pleasure to be here. So let's talk first about the Global Warming Solutions Act, actually, since that was sort of the breaking news from yesterday. The governor uh, decided to veto that legislation. Uh, tell us why. Sure. Uh, there, there are several concerns that we have regarding the way the, the Global Warming Solutions Act came together. Uh, I would say they're well known to the legislature and shouldn't have come as a surprise. The first relates to the, the size and structure of the Climate Action Council that the Global Warming Solutions Act establishes. Uh, it's a 23-person council that includes eight members of the administration as well as 15 um, people that are going to be appointed by the, the two chambers of the General Assembly. Um, we have concerns both about the, the constitutionality of, of having such a, a council and, and frankly, the, the size and the unwieldy nature of it. 
Um, this council is being given an enormous charge of work uh, to accomplish between now and, and December of 2021 in terms of developing a climate action plan. Um, we had made suggestions that it, it really be an executive branch function, that the, the public members of the council be, be instead um, made part of an advisory group that the, the administration team would, would consult with regularly in developing the plan. Um, but the, the legislature decided to, to go this route instead. Um, I think there are also some concerns just about what the, the legislature's role ultimately is in, in approving the plan developed by the council that, that has not, uh, there isn't clarity in what happens after the plan is developed. And if it's simply um, the, the council would make some recommendations and the administration would be charged with implementing them without um, having the legislature uh, weigh in and, and frankly buy into the plan. The, uh, the the council's recommendations or any suggestions for rulemaking in the sort of, wouldn't that go in front of the administrative rules committee of the, of the legislature? It would, but but only after the the agency had in, engaged in in that work. Um, and so that you know, moving forward and in, in, into the rulemaking process is not the time to necessarily hear of legislative objections. We'd want to make sure it was consistent with their intent and expectations before engaging in those kinds of significant undertakings. The, uh, uh, also ha- oh, sorry, go ahead. No, you uh, you go ahead. I'd rather have you <laughs> continue. Sure. The, the, the other primary concern that the, the governor identified relates to the, the cause of action that's, that's contained in the Global Warming Solutions Act. Um, we are very supportive of the efforts of the, the legislature to take our climate goals and make them requirements to make clear our commitment to doing that work um, and, and put some of the force of law behind it. Um, we are concerned, however, that the way it's structured um, and, frankly, the, the short time between where we sit today and when that, is, that initial uh, cause of action would be available um, is, is that it has the real, very real potential to, to set us up to fail and to find ourselves in litigation. And as we saw from the, the state's clean water experience, uh, litigation leads to uncertainty and delay, and we don't believe that we can afford that right now when it comes to, to climate action. Um, the, the final <clears throat> final piece of concern is is really yep. what the scope of the cause of action is. Um, the, the cause of action is is focused almost exclusively, or maybe exclusively, on meeting greenhouse gas emission reduction targets. Um, the the <clears throat> bill speaks broadly to the need to to think about resiliency and adaptation, and we know that that work is going to be important, even if Vermont is able to drive its greenhouse gas emissions to zero. Um, we, the, the effects of climate change are, are still going to, to happen here. Um, they're happening here right now. And we need to be, be thoughtful and be making strategic investments and continue to make strategic investments in the work to make sure our, our landscape is, resilient, is as resilient as possible to the, the changes that will occur. Um, and because the cause of action is really focused on the greenhouse gas reduction piece, um, there's a concern that we're going to end up um, being required by the courts to overinvest in that particular component of work and and not do the the important adaptation work. Let me let me ask you about the uh, about the litigation aspect of this because I'm curious to know sort of what the time interval is when when these uh, when when litigation could commence after this law takes effect. Is it? It sounded like you think it's too quick. So the, the first um, 
climate goal that is made a requirement under the Global Warming Solutions Act is is meeting a, t- a target for 2025. Um, currently, we're in 2020. 2025 certainly it sounds like it's a, a ways off. Uh, that said, we the, the um, Global Warming Solutions Act allows through December of 2021 for the Climate Council to do its work. It then provides a year for the agency to do any rulemaking necessary to implement the recommendations of the council, which would take us to the end of calendar year 22. Um, and we know that, that just because we've written the rules doesn't mean that, that the full benefits have accrued. Um, and leaves a very finite amount of time to, to do that work um, before that first cause of action becomes available. Um, appreciate the, the efforts of the legislature to, to narrow the cause of action. I, I know that they, they've worked hard to ensure it really is just about making sure we do the work um, and, and not about necessarily um, uh, cost recovery or, or other pieces. The, the issue is litigation inherently induces uncertainty into the process um, and that it's, it's going to flow, to my mind, forward progress um, when we're just beginning to hopefully pick up some speed. Uh, you mentioned litigation in connection with the water quality, and I'm wondering, let, let's get a brief review of the history there from my recollection. Um, Conservation Law Foundation sued the state, uh, the EPA, as a result, has ended up requiring uh, TMDLs for uh, Lake Champlain just as one outcome. Um, is there a uh, would 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 that have happened without litigation? Do you think? I, I do. So uh, I think it's important um, to to look at the the full arc of of water quality. Uh, there was a, a TMDL, a pollution budget for Lake Champlain, that was put in place by agreement between New York and Vermont. Um, back in 2002, that followed several years of extensive study of the lake um, and development of that pollution budget. Uh, Vermont had then stood up what was called the Clean and Clear program at that time, which sought to implement the TMDL. Um, and in, I believe, late 2007, um, Conservation Law Foundation uh, sued EPA for having approved the TMDL in 2002, um, and uh, cited a number of, of different issues and concerns with the TMDL. Um, from 2007 until 2011, EPA considered whether or not they should, what they should do with CLF's petition. Um, and then ultimately in 2011 agreed to reopen the TMDL. It took until 2016 to get a new plan in place that there, that there was broad agreement to. And over the last four years, we have obviously turned our attention to the, the full implementation of that plan. But I think there was a, a lot of lost time and lost opportunity between 2008 and 2016 um, spent on, on redesigning a plan and, and resolving litigation um, that otherwise could have gone to implementation. Uh, I, I don't disagree that, that we improved our knowledge of the, the lake ecosystem. Um, through doing that work, but I, I'm not sure uh, that was the highest and best use of those eight years. Uh, in your word, essentially, it sounds like about uh, sort of a repeat performance in connection with climate change here. I, I, I am. I, I think it's, it's, it's uncertainty and delay, and it's not to say that ultimately um, the, the framework included in the Global Warming Solutions Act wouldn't won't get us there. Um, you know, there, there are targets 
I described the 2025 target, there are also targets for 2030 and 2050 um, that, that in some ways are, are less problematic because there's more time to, to build up that head of steam. Um, I, and I, I agree that, that that is ultimately where we, we need to get to um, and know that the governor feels that, that too. Um, and it's really the question of is having some of these, these interim targets with a cause of action um, ultimately in service of or going to be a detriment to um, our ability to do that hard work. And yet sometimes these things are, um, you know, it feels like everybody sort of wants to row in the same direction, but it just depends on sort of how hard and how fast. Uh, and the, the the story that I hear from the environmental groups in Vermont is that, you know, we, we really have not made much progress at all. In fact, we've regressed in some respects in terms of the amount of greenhouse gas, gas emissions emitted within Vermont over the past few years. Uh, and it basically the state needs a kick in the pants here. Um, so what do you say to all that? Yeah, I, I agree that we, we have a lot of work to do. I think the question to my mind, um, specific to the Global Warming Solutions Act is, is this actually the right tool to help us get the job done? Uh, we know that 40% of the, our greenhouse gas emissions here in Vermont come from the transportation sector. Uh, that's clearly a place where we, where we need to focus. Um, and yet the Agency of Natural Resources has fairly limited um, tools in our disposal to affect major change in that, that area um, through regulatory processes. You know, incentives and, and other measures to help change consumer behavior are one thing, um, but that, that's not really where the focus of the Global Warming Solutions Act is. And under the Clean Air Act um, and the, the partnership we have with the state of California to, to be able to have access to lower emissions vehicles to, and have them for, for sale here in Vermont, um, beyond that, we have a fairly narrow set of tools. And so it, it you know, it, it, it's not the intent of the law that anyone is really questioning. It, it's the, the approach it prescribes and whether that's really the, the right way to, to get us where we need to go and appreciate that we need to go. Um, and we need to go hard, and we need to go fast. Uh, Paul Burns of uh, the Vermont Public Interest Research Group uh, put up a post saying, Maine, Massachusetts, Connecticut, and New York uh, already have the similar laws on the books. Meanwhile, Vermont is falling behind and has the highest climate emissions per capita in the region. The reasons for the veto are unfounded and have been repeatedly disputed during legislative process by legal and scientific experts, just uh, in order to get a little bit of both sides of the story into this uh, first half-hour segment of the program this morning. Clearly, there's a lot of upset among green groups, uh, uh, some of them issuing statements saying the governor needs to be uh, defeated in in November solely because of this. Yeah, he's done a great job on the coronavirus, but, boy, this global warming stuff is really uh, <clears throat> really a, a very important issue also upcoming I'm wondering, uh, talk to me a little bit about the optics here. We have these horrible uh, wildfires going on in California, Oregon, some in Washington State. We have hurricanes lining up in the Atlantic to hammer the Gulf Coast. feels like we're, uh, a lot of the predictions that have been made over the years about growing catastrophes connected with climate change are starting to, uh, starting to come true. Uh, it, it must be, I mean, you must feel like from in your internal discussions with the governor and others on his team that it's a tough time to issue this veto. It, uh, it is, right? And, and I think it, it's, 
it's hard to then separate the, the substance of what the Global Warming Solutions Act would actually accomplish from the work we really need to do to address climate change. And I don't see them as being one and the same. Um, but that is an extremely uh, challenging talking point. Um, and frank- frankly, getting people to, to look under the hood and see just what is part of the Global Warming Solutions Act and, and what isn't. It, it doesn't change my, my personal belief, the governor's belief, and our, our commitment to, to taking steps to address global warming. Um, he's certainly prioritized investments in electric vehicles in his last couple of budgets and believes that that's an important component of an overall strategy. Um, there's work being done on the comprehensive energy plan, the state's comprehensive energy plan right now that's being led by the public service department. Um, and there's in, important opportunities in there also to, to further our greenhouse gas emissions reductions work. Um, resiliency has been folded into uh, the work of the Agency of Transportation as they consider different types of infrastructure investments in trying to ensure um, that it, as climate change happens, that, that our landscape is, is able to absorb um, and respond to those storm events as best it can. Um, but I, I agree, it's, it's real and it's here, and you don't even need to look to, to California or the Gulf Coast. Um, Vermont is suffering, many or most parts of Vermont this summer have experienced moderate drought conditions. Um, the same thing happened last summer. And from what I've read and what I've learned from, from the state climatologists, you know, this is, this is a reflection of, of stationarity where a weather pattern sets up and it tends to stay in place. Um, and this is consistent with, with what would be expected for this area under a changing climate regime as well. Julia, I did want to uh, cover another piece of legislation which is pending and has been talked about now for, I guess, in a, what, total of two or three years or something, including the task force that uh, delved into the uh, landmark land use law in Vermont, Act 250, as it's known. Uh, there is a legislation that's been uh, bouncing along in this weird COVID-affected legislative session to make some changes to Act 250. Uh, the governor uh, yesterday expressed... Uh, what sounded like some, and I think you did too at the news conference, uh, some some uh, serious skepticism about the legislation, which I guess has been pared down. Is that a good way to describe it? Yeah, it it, it has been significantly pared down. It, it has been a, a lengthy process. There was a, a legislative commission that spent 18 months um, looking at Act 250, traveling around the state, taking testimony from a wide variety of witnesses and preparing a fairly comprehensive report. The House Natural Resources Committee um, then spent the the entire first half of this biennium as well as a, a portion of, of the second half of the biennium um, working on Act 250 legislation and, and put forward a, a fairly comprehensive proposal. Um, one of the pieces that we thought was, was really important from the administration's perspective was steps to professionalize the Natural Resources Board. Um, currently, there are, are nine district commissions that review applications, and we know as, as those applications um, over time and the issues they're intended to address have become more complex, um, that is, it's challenging for volunteer commissions to, to do all of that work. It's also become challenging, frankly, to find people uh, to serve as district commissioners, and that, that piece, unfortunately, uh, didn't make it out of the House. Um, we did work extensively with the Senate Natural Resources Committee um, and the Vermont Natural Resources Council to try to identify a, a, a compromise proposal in light of the fact that the, the Professional Natural Resources Board was no longer on the table um, that included 
uh, work related to, to recreational trails, to forest processing, to reducing forest fragmentation, um, to promoting development in downtowns and village centers. Uh, and, and at this point, there, there are just two pieces left standing. Um, the for, a piece related to forest fragmentation and reducing the impact or evaluating the impacts and seeking to minimize and mitigate them. Um, and then some language that, that would uh, create a, a process for dealing with, with recreational trails and, and provide um, about 18 months for that work to take place. Hmm. So it's sort of a, a, a disappointing end to a really um, what, what was a significant undertaking at its outset. Um, and it, it, we're as concerned about what's not in the bill, frankly, as anything that's in there at this point. There was some discussion about updating Act 250 to account for uh, issues related to climate change. Where does that stand? Uh, that that was part of the, the initial um, bill passed by the House, but has not been something that's been discussed by the Senate, to the best of my knowledge. So that's not really in the legislation uh, as it stands right now either. Is that right? No, no, it's not. I mean, it, I think some could argue that the, the forest fragmentation piece is an important component as, as we begin to, to think about our landscape and, and how to ensure its resiliency to climate change, but it, it, it is not direct, right? It's, it's that, that indirect benefit of, of healthy forests. Wow. Uh, well, <laughs> I mean, part of, the, part of me thinks we may be in just this weird COVID session. It's tough to get such a complex piece of legislation done with the, in, these, in the current conditions. Would you agree with that, or am I, am I being too forgiving? No, uh, absolutely. I, I think this, this, the session is a, enormously challenging. And, and having spent most of my last six months in Teams meetings and on Zoom calls, can appreciate that the, the ability for to robustly engage a diverse group of stakeholders is challenged in this environment. And I know the legislature um, is, is has felt those those same challenges. And I agree. You know, this is this is a really big and complex issue. Um, and it, it may be something that, that needs to wait until we're able to work on it together and in person. As I've heard at the end of too many Red Sox seasons, wait till next year. All right, uh, <laughs> Julie, Julie Moore, the uh, Secretary of Natural Resources, thanks very much for joining me this morning. I really appreciate it. It's my pleasure, Dave. Thanks for having me. All righty. Let's go to a, I think we got a bottom of the hour break coming up for some uh, words from sponsors, CBS News, and all that sort of stuff. Uh, we'll be back shortly, folks. Are you itching to get out, explore our great state? Don your mask and come to the Warren store in the beautiful Mad River Valley. The store is open to a limited number of customers upstairs and down. Dilly takeout by phone or window, but you can finally choose beer, wine, chips, etc. No appointment needed upstairs. Well stocked with cool summer clothing, cards, candles, bags, and jewelry, puzzles and toys for all ages, art supplies, books, and interactive learning games. Are your kids bored and driving you crazy? Bring them to the Warren store. Practicing all safe protocols. Masks required. Now back to the Dave Graham Show on WDEV FM and AM. We are back in the uh, second half hour of our program on this Wednesday morning. And uh, 
Peter Henney is a, an assistant professor of the political science department at the University of Vermont. He specializes in uh, the Mideast uh, politics and religion and the role of religion in Mideast politics, how that influ- how the uh, Islamic religion in particular uh, affects the uh, foreign policy and other activities of uh, various countries in the Middle East. He's he actually focused in a book on the uh, United Arab Emirates and uh, uh, thought he'd be a good person to get on the radio this morning because... Uh, there was a big announcement out of the White House yesterday concerning an agreement between Israel, the United Arab Emirates, and Bahrain, in which uh, the three nations have agreed to open diplomatic relations, which is uh, something new for the Middle East. Of course, uh, a lot of times it's been a uh, pretty much cold war between Israel and most of the uh, Arab countries in the region. And uh, so this may be a, uh, well, President Trump certainly calls it a sign of big progress in the Middle East. And uh wanted to find out uh, how significant and where does it fit in the overall ways we should be thinking about the Middle East and its and its, hist- its uh, history. Uh, Peter Henney, I believe, is on the phone with us this morning. Uh, Professor, good morning. Thanks for joining me. Are you there? I'm, yeah, I'm there. Can you hear me? Yes, no, now I can hear you. All right, sorry. Okay, great. Well, th- thanks for joining me again, and uh, I really appreciate it. Uh, it seemed like you were uh, pretty much an ideal person to uh, come on uh, with us and comment about this development that uh, w- was uh, formalized yesterday uh, in the at the White House. And uh, so, what are your thoughts? Do you think that uh, this is a, a huge deal, a medium large deal, a medium deal, or a small deal? Uh, so, I think it's a big deal, but mm-hmm. not as big of a deal as Trump is making it out to be, mm-hmm. right? So there were not formal diplomatic ties between Israel and the UAE before this. So it's a big step forward that they're going to, you know, establish these ties and expand into different areas of cooperation. And this might bring other states in the region along. So Bahrain has, has you know, joined in since then, and other states are being generally supportive. Um that being said, it wasn't like Egypt and Israel, right? So in the 70s, we had the Camp David Accords, the big peace treaty between Egypt and Israel, and they had fought several wars. Yeah. Um, the UAE and Israel were not at war, so it's not that big or transformative of a moment. It also kind of uh, solidifies what was already happening. Like They were kind of pulling close together because of um, fears of Iran, and some economic interactions. And so this kind of helped nudge it along. So I think it is a big deal. Um, but, yeah, it's not, like, Nobel Peace Prize worthy, I think. Uh, another aspect of it is just the, the Palestinians, who are feeling a little bit left out. Right? They aren't part of this big peace push. Mm-hmm. Apparently, you know, the Israeli government is going to stop or not going to annex the West Bank, in exchange for normalizing ties with the UAE. Oh, that, that wasn't really, as far as I could tell, uh, worked out in the agreement. So it's kind of hoping that happens. But for the most part, this was done kind of around the Palestinians. And so if, if you think of you know, Middle East peace as advancing the the rights and cause of, of Palestinian people, this didn't, didn't seem to do a whole lot for that. Hmm. And that's the really tough nut to crack over there, isn't it? I mean, basically there's the Palestinian... Uh, people dispute uh, a lot of uh, Israel's territorial claims, and uh, 
that is the uh, it, would you say that's the real flashpoint of uh, the historic tensions in that, in that region uh, so historically it was the flashpoint but I really think a lot of the Arab states in the region have moved on not necessarily the people in these states but the <clears throat> leaders are no longer really pushing the rights of the Palestinians as a, as a big issue and from their perspective, they argue, like, you know, it's hard to work. The Palestinian leadership is kind of corrupt and inefficient. Um, Israel is not interested in working with them. And so, okay, that's their justification, but it's hard for them to say this is meant to advance the Palestinian cause. I just don't think it is. What um, what are some of the other countries? You, you mentioned that uh, that UAE went first. Bahrain is now signed up. Uh, uh, is, it, it sounds like there may be other cars added to this train. Yeah, so um, Oman has been, uh, people have been whispering about that for a while. Netanyahu, the prime minister of Israel, met with the leader of Oman recently, a year or two ago. Um and so that you know, it, it's not like a major player in the region, but it is another Arab state, and that could be that could be interesting. Yeah, um, I'm wondering also the politics of this. Obviously, we do have an election coming up in the United States in a very short period of time. Um, was there some um, motivation for, say, Benjamin Netanyahu? To uh, to get this done uh, at this time with this timing in mind uh, to help the president's re-election prospects. Yeah, I think so. You know, I think Trump has been pushing for some big foreign policy win. So there's North Korea, mm-hmm. so some progress on Iran, and so this could be. It. He's trying to present this as you know, look at the great deal President Trump made, um, and then Yahoo. You know, has really come to rely on Trump because Trump has been a big supporter of Netanyahu's policies. Uh, it's not likely, you know, President Biden would be as supportive, right? I mean, I think Netanyahu has burned a lot of bridges with Democrats in America by being so close to Trump. So he has an interest in keeping Trump reelected. Um, but then, then, you know, and Israel did kind of give up some stuff. So there's tensions early on about F 35 sales to the UAE. Mm-hmm. Where the UAE wants these advanced aircraft, Israel was not super happy about another state getting them, but it seems like right. they've relented. Um, and so, yeah, Netanyahu is—they're—they're they're facing some cost in his mind for for negotiating this deal, and it seems part of the reason is to help out Trump. Yeah, that's interesting. Although, I mean, Netanyahu, I'm sure, can also read uh, the polling results from the United States and see that the um, that this uh, election. Could go to Joe Biden. Uh, is there anything he's doing, trying to do, needs to do to um, try to get ready for an eventuality like that? Um, yeah, right. So, like, so I think I think Netanyahu has really tied himself to Trump and the Republican Party, whereas historically it was kind of a bipartisan support for Israel, and you still see support for Israel among Democrats, but the Israeli mm-hmm. government under Netanyahu has been much more tilted towards Republicans. Um, some people think, though, you know, say Biden gets elected, Netanyahu could say, look, we, we're we taking peace seriously. We signed a deal with the UAE and Bahrain and, and, other, and maybe other states by then. So they could use this as foundation to work with a Biden administration. I think that's possible. Because um, I, I, I could see, you know, if President Hillary Clinton was in office now, I could see her maybe negotiating the same sort of deal, right, where it's not a perfect peace to help out the Palestinians, but it is maybe moving the region closer to more normal relations. 
Yeah, certainly just opening up a, a diplomatic, you know, exchange of ambassadors between neighboring countries. You would think that's sort of a good start. So, uh, and, and pretty basic and, and, and why, why weren't there ambassadors already? Uh, I mean, I mean, there's a long involved history there, but, uh, hey, uh, 244-1777 is the local number in Waterbury for anybody who wants to call in with questions or comments, uh, for Professor Peter Henning of the University of Vermont and, uh, one eight seven seven two nine one eight two five five is the toll free number here at WDEV. I believe we do have a, a listener who's checking in with us, Kip from Middlebury. Good morning, Kip. Uh, good morning, guys. Uh, question for the professor. Um, I don't know how quickly you can sort of summarize this, but um, it seems to me that whenever there's a conversation about the Middle East, it's helpful to describe the two different kinds of Islam, um, why they're different, and how. Uh, that that difference plays out sort of in the larger geopolitic of the Middle East. Sunni and Shiite Islam, I think you're referring to, right, Kip? Okay. Uh, let's go to uh, Professor Henny and assume that's what he meant. Uh, the, the two different kinds of Islam, how are they uh, rubbing up against each other and maybe affecting what happened yesterday? Um, yeah, I think so. So the UAE is a Sunni Muslim state. Uh, Israel is predominantly Jewish. And so a lot of the Sunni Arab states are concerned about Iran, which is Persian, primarily Persian ethnicity, but Shia Islam. And so there mm-hmm. is that divide. Um, you know, it, it wouldn't, I wouldn't say it's a completely, you know, a Sunni-Shia split, right, because they are working with America and Israel. But there is this, there's tensions along those kind of sectarian lines, um, and I think that I think the, the concerns about Iran definitely played into it. I'm not sure it'd be a concern about Shia Islam more generally. Like I don't think the UAE is concerned about Shia Islam spreading into their country. But you know, they and, and Saudi Arabia and others in, in the Gulf are, are definitely worried about Iran's hostility, and they see kind of a convenient ally in Israel who's also legitimately worried about Iran. Yeah, so what what is it that, uh, say, the UAE or Bahrain would be worried about uh, from Iran? What, what, do they, what do they think Iran might do that would affect them? Um, so, you know, there's been a history of uh, tensions over certain islands in, in, in the Gulf. Uh, but more generally, I think it's, it's they'd be concerned about getting caught in the middle of a bigger fight between... Iran and Saudi Arabia, or Iran and America. Mm-hmm. It's a there's been um, Iran-linked militants who've like fired rockets on Emirati and Saudi targets, and they're a little concerned about that. Um, and then it's also kind of the sense they're not sure what America would do if Iran really became hostile. So when mm-hmm. you know we had um, it looked close like war like wars could be close to breaking out between America and Iran a couple years ago, and then it kind of died down. People weren't sure where America stood. And so some people think maybe this is also, it could be like a, an insurance policy that in addition to just relying on America, the UAE could also work with Israel in the event of tensions with or hostilities with Iran. Uh, so I definitely think concerns about Iranian host- aggression are, are part of the reason for this deal. Well, and of course, Israel is also, it seems, readier, uh, and I guess understandably so, given the, the the state of Israel's location and so on, and uh, and history and and uh, and opposition from its neighbors. 
uh, you know, Israel seems readier to uh, to fight in that part of the world than the United States does. The United States obviously wants to uh, seems to want to maintain uh, a, a fairly aggressive stance as well. But but Israel is really in the thick of it. So I guess if you're Bahrain and you're looking for you're looking for friends in a street fight, you know, probably. See if you can uh, see if you can now tell me uh, do um, do these uh, Persian Gulf countries uh, UAE and Bahrain um, do they already have uh, diplomatic ties uh, with Iran uh, you know the exchange of ambassadors just as again a basic sort of symbol of, of a lot of other stuff uh, is that already established there or or is that something that's not in place um yeah, they they do. So the UAE has ties. Qatar has ties. I have to check on the details for Bahrain. Um, but, yeah, they do have diplomatic connections with Iran. This isn't like a complete sort of Cold War or, or hot war between them. Mm-hmm. And I actually, you know, I, I think there are some indications of you know, the UAE and the Saudis. They're worried about Iran, but they're also – they don't necessarily want – Absolute outright war with Iran because they're they'd be first in line for an attack. Um, and so it's actually interesting to look at you know, someone like Qatar, who is uh, you know, there's been this blockade of Qatar for some years by the Saudis and the Emiratis, partly because Qatar is closer to Iran, and Qatar has also been basically said we're not going to normalize ties with Israel until the Palestinian issue is is resolved. Hmm. Um, and so I think we're seeing interesting divides here in terms of. You know how close or friendly our states towards Iran as well as Israel, and I'm actually kind of waiting to see what other countries in the region may follow Qatar's lead in speaking out against this deal. Because for the most part, states are either they seem okay with it or they're just not saying anything. So Qatar is actually out front in the in public now saying this is a bad idea. What happened yesterday? Well, well, what they said, I think specifically, what they said was, you know, we would not normalize relations with Israel until the uh, broader deal with. The Palestine is, is resolved. I see. It's not like okay. going after it strongly, but yeah, that's enough to indicate what they think. Yeah, uh, I mean, you, they're clearly choosing sides here, and uh, so far, uh, not with Israel. Um, interesting. Is how how is this going to play? Uh, let's say among U.S. Jewish voters who obviously follow events in uh, in Israel, uh, or a lot of them follow events in Israel, Israel quite closely. Not to say everybody's on exactly the same page about what Israel ought to do from week to week or month to month, but uh, that's uh, certainly a, a topic of interest. Uh, is this a win for the president politically among some key voters in key states, or does it matter, do you think? What, how, does this, how does this play out? Um, yeah, so that's, I mean, that's a little bit outside of what I focus on. I, I don't think it's necessarily a win. You know, I, I think mm-hmm. the American Jewish community is diverse in terms of political views. Um, yep. Netanyahu is a divisive figure. So even if you generally support Israel, not necessarily on board with, with him as a leader, um, I think Trump can say, like, look, look at all I'm doing for Israel. I'm helping them out with, you know, recognizing Netanyahu's efforts and trying to bring peace to them. Uh, but again, I don't think it really transformed the situation because the most immediate issue was the the, the Palestinian issue, which hasn't really been resolved. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's true. I mean, uh, that and that is the big that, that is remains, as I said, the big nut to crack over there. Um, 
talk to me a little bit about the move of the embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem accomplished a couple of years ago, uh, or three years ago, or I'm not sure exactly when, but sometime during President Trump's term. Um, that's not anything that, uh, at this point, if, if you were elected, Joe Biden would reverse, is it? Um, I actually haven't seen anything specific on that, and it might be something he's trying to avoid specifically talking about until then. Hmm. Uh, it is. What, sorry, go ahead. I was just going to ask. Refresh us on the on the downsides of of this move. In other words, why would Biden revisit this decision if he if he might do that? Yeah. So the status of, of Jerusalem is tricky because it was kind of meant to be the capital of, of Israel and the Palestinian state initially. You know, East Jerusalem for the yeah. Palestinians. Israel had kept its, you know, its formal capital in Tel Aviv for a while, kind of to avoid um, dealing with this with this question and provoking. And most other countries have have gone along with that. So it is kind of, in effect, saying you know Jerusalem belongs to Israel as the capital, which makes it really hard to work out a, a peace deal with the Palestinians because it's not clear where that leaves them. And and when when they moved the embassy, we said you know it's. There's still going to be room for Palestinians to make use of part of the city, but it was a little unclear. And so, you know, I've been trying to see what, you know, where is the um, Emirati embassy going to be? I don't think it's going to be in Jerusalem. Uh, It seems like they're kind of waiting on some of those details. Hmm. Because, again, that would be pretty controversial. The flip side, though, is it was not not as controversial as we expected. You know, it happened. The prediction is there's going to be protests around the region. It'll feel like another intifada like we had uh, back in the early 2000s. Mm-hmm. And it didn't really come together. And it's not like, I don't, don't think it's because people in the region were okay with this move. It's just there's so many other issues going on, or it's almost just resigning, like, okay, this Israel's going to do this and America's going to do it. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, to your specific question, I honestly don't know if Biden would move it. I, right, sure. I think um, what I have heard was that you know, his foreign policy team is a little bit more called establishment centrist on Israel. I mean, they don't want to change yeah. uh, too much and put too much well, pressure on Israel. And so I, I actually we'll, we'll, uh, we'll have to it. see how it all plays out. Unfortunately, we're about out of time. But I, Peter Henney of the University of Vermont, I really appreciate you uh, joining me this morning. Uh, it's uh, good talking with you. And let's check in again as these uh, events continue to unfold. Yeah, great. Thanks. Okay. A brief break for some CBS News at the top of the hour. We'll be back shortly, folks. Are you itching to get out, explore our great state? Don your mask and come to the Warren store in the beautiful Mad River Valley. The store is open to a limited number of customers upstairs and down. Dilly takeout by phone or window, but you can finally choose beer, wine, chips, etc. No appointment needed upstairs. Well stocked with cool summer clothing, cards, candles, bags, and jewelry, puzzles and toys for all ages, art supplies, books, and interactive learning games. Are your kids bored and driving you crazy? Bring them to the Warren store. Practicing all safe protocols. Masks required. News Radio, WDEV, FM, and AM. Now back to the Dave Graham Show. 
We are back, and normally after the mid-show break, we uh, try to bring in one of our national correspondents, uh, Bob Nay, on Fridays, uh, CBS News, uh, a few days of the week. Sometimes Axios joins in. Uh, today we thought we were going to be able to line up a CBS News person. Uh, turns out that uh, the person we had in mind is busy covering the news. Imagine that, and won't be able to uh, join us. So, um, But I, I wanted to just take a few minutes here and uh, kind of respond to an e- interesting email I got from a listener, I think it was on Monday, and uh, the um, it, it, the uh, text of the email said, do you think this story will get as much play as the original anonymous bombshell report? And this story, uh, the uh, email links to an NBC News report talking about how the uh, commander, Central Command, a uh, man named McKenzie, U.S. forces in uh, in Afghanistan is uh, basically saying that the U.S. military has not been able to, to confirm and nail down these allegations that uh, the Russians were paying bounties uh, for uh, U.S. soldiers in uh, in the Middle East, and um, the uh, the email uh, seemed to indicate that there should be sort of coverage to match that uh, of, of a month or so ago. When this story first broke, um, and President Trump got a lot of criticism, uh, continues to get criticism from Joe Biden and some Democrats, because he hasn't done much about this allegation, uh, hasn't really done anything from what anybody can discern about this allegation that the Russians were paying bounties for the deaths of U.S. Uh, military personnel in Afghanistan. Um, the uh, So... I looked at the story, and, you know, basically a lot, a lot of times I get questions about media coverage of stuff because of my background as a longtime journalist in Vermont, and um, and a lot of the questions seem to go to uh, what about, you know, sort of parallel or exactly equal coverage to this issue versus that issue or this this outcome of a, of a story uh, versus the initial burst of the story, et cetera. Um, and I guess my my uh, response to this would be um, I don't think it's I don't think this new one is is quite there yet um, that basically it's not definitive according to this commander um, and Mackenzie that is that uh, meanwhile the earlier report was based on uh, CIA officials telling journalists in the New York Times mainly or at least. First, uh, the uh, New York Times reporting that there were these bounties paid, and the uh, CIA folks were telling the Times that, that there were documents that, where they had seen evidence of payments by Russians uh, on the deaths of U.S. soldiers, uh, and that they had, the CIA had interviewed Taliban folks who who uh, confirmed that they had they knew about this program and had taken advantage of it, and so on. So. I don't think there's a um, uh, there there is a clear enough denunciation of that earlier report here. I mean, I guess it's hard to prove prove a negative, but uh, and in fact, this commander uh, McKenzie in the NBC News report says they're continuing to look into it. They just haven't been been able to uh, to nail it down yet, and so it seems like it's a um, it is a sort of a, a progress step here that it has not been resolved and uh, and there there also frankly I think is probably some motivation 
uh, for the senior commander of U.S. forces in Afghanistan to uh, perhaps raise questions about the earlier reports because he's working uh, in the chain of command, which is headed up by President Trump. President Trump has come in for criticism for not taking strong action against uh, this alleged activity by the, the uh, by Russia, and so the the uh, commander would have perhaps uh, some motivation to defend the boss, basically. Um, and not to say he's he's lying or whatever, but a lot of times people's uh, view of events and view of circumstances is colored by their loyalties. And uh, and and here he is in this very senior position in the chain of command of the U.S. military reporting to a commander-in-chief named Donald Trump. And uh, so we uh, just not sure here. Bottom line is, if I'm the editor deciding about the play of this story, uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna say I want more before I really blow it out. Um, and uh, so that's uh, that's my answer to this uh, email I got on on Monday. Um, I'm happy to hear folks' uh, other opinions, countervailing opinions, if you like, out there. Two four four one seven 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 is the local number in Waterbury. The toll free number one eight seven seven. Two nine one eight two five five or two nine one talk, and um, maybe I'll ask uh, Steve Pappas uh, what he thinks. The editor of the Rutland Herald and Times Argus is going to be joining me at about quarter after the hour, and uh, we're going to be talking about a variety of recent news events, and um, we will uh, see uh, perhaps if uh, he has any thoughts on this. If if there is a uh, but it, these are tough calls, uh, and, and I, you know, another journalist might very well disagree with me and say, you know, here's the senior commander in, in Afghanistan saying uh, that we haven't been able to nail down this allegation uh, and really prove it that uh, that the Soviets were uh, taking out bounties on or paying bounties on the heads of U.S. soldiers in Afghanistan, um, and unfortunately, I think what happens a lot is that people take little shards like this and get really excited about them because they tend to support a certain ideological point of view. But uh, I think the job of a journalist is to kind of stack up what the evidence shows, uh, how big a deal it is, uh, certainly never close the door to the idea that if you, even if you're not going to run a story this week, it might not get to be a bigger blip on the radar screen by next week. That's always a possibility as well, uh, you know, if something more definitive is being said. But with this commander who is being seized upon as evidence of, of uh, say, see, there's nothing there, or there's no bounties being paid, that's the argument. That's not what he's saying. He's saying they haven't been able to nail down that there have been bounties paid, and they're still working on it. So that's where things stand there. And uh, anyway, um, we... Uh, here on the Dave Graham Show on WDEV FM and AM, obviously uh, welcome uh, all sorts of uh, countervailing views and and don't mind when listeners want to call in and tell us we're uh, just completely wrong, <laughs> which is it wouldn't be the first time or I'm sure the last. But uh, want to introduce my next guest. Uh, probably needs no introduction at this point on the Dave Graham Show because he's been a guest probably more often than anyone else uh, in the couple of years or well, it'll be three years upcoming in February. 
that I've been in the uh, chair here, but uh, Steve Pappas is the uh, editor and publisher of the Times Argus and Rutland Herald, and very thoughtful guy on a wide range of news events, re- ranging from the very local to the very international. And uh, Steve, welcome to the program. Thanks for joining me. Yeah, glad to be back with you again, Dave. I understand that you had a feisty first part of the show. You've 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 been having <laughs> talking about the news of the day. Is this true? Well, you know, that's what we do here. We try to talk about the news of the day and ask provocative questions and and uh, get people to uh, uh, weigh in and tell us what they really think and that sort of thing. And I, I, I yeah, I, th- I thought the uh, I thought the first couple of interviews this morning went pretty well, and uh, so hoping uh, listeners agree. Uh, I think we'll, we may have some time during this uh, second hour here when you and I tend to sometimes chat in a rather relaxed fashion to take a couple uh, phone calls from folks if they want to weigh in either on the questions surrounding the Global Warming Solutions Act and Act 250 that I was talking with uh, Julie Moore of the Agency of Natural Resources about in the first half hour there, or uh, Peter Henney, the uh, professor from the University of Vermont, who joined me in the, in the 930 block to talk about this uh, Middle East uh, diplomatic agreement that was announced yesterday at the White House in Washington. Uh, how big a deal was that, really? And uh, it uh, wasn't everything, but it was something. It seemed to be the uh, the word we were getting from from the professor. So there you go, um, Steve. I, I, I noticed an editorial that you had in the paper today. Very interesting, where you uh, basically were looking at I think some some uh, Pew survey results indicating that. Uh, the world, uh, internationally anyway, other other, other uh, developed countries where these surveys are happening, taking um, a fairly dim view, I guess, of uh, President Trump when he was first elected, and maybe that has grown dimmer since then, especially with his handling of the coronavirus. Is that, do I understand your basic uh, thrust correctly? That's the that is definitely the thrust. The, so the the Pew organization. Um, put out a, some polling data that the Washington Post reported on in yesterday's, in yesterday's edition, um, talking about, um, it's basically an opportunity for Pew to reach out to, um, friends and foes around the world to find out how, what we all think of each other. And, um, it's not just an evaluation of, um, the United States. It's an evaluation of how we all perceive each other as nations, and um, and and yes, the the percentages showed that um, pretty much, uh, well, not pretty much across the board, um, nobody uh, nobody thinks too highly of the United States right now, and um, kind of its role on the world stage, and um, President certainly President Trump's. Numbers uh, dipped significantly. I don't have it in front of me, but you know it was it went from I think a seven p seventeen percent approval rating or a forty six percent and down to a seventeen or something like that. It was a very precipitous drop, um, and this was not. It was done in the spring. The, the poll was done in the spring, so we were still pretty early into coronavirus, but we were still in that stage where the president was um, saying that it was it was going to kind of work itself out, and he hadn't openly acknowledged that it was um, a crisis in the United States at the time. So 
a lot of the results were skewed toward the that denial of um, responsibility for um, kind of leading the United States at that point. So that was certainly one of the factors. Um, the it was interesting to see that, um, for example, it the the polling shows that um, one of our previous um, allies in South Korea that they have uh, always had kind of a a fond spot for the United States because you know we 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 helped at a critical time uh, and uh, have supported them since the war and. Come to find out that even the South Koreans, who um, are seem to be quite loyal to us, um, not so much anymore. So we, uh, it's kind of a, it was disheartening. I tried to not always uh, write editorials that say, "Wow, look how much we stink," um, but uh, <laughs> this one felt like uh, um, certainly a fall from grace, at least among the uh, 12 other countries that were polled about us. Germany, um, Chancellor Merkel um, kind of got the highest uh, the highest rank- ranking of um, a world leader um, and as being very effective both in the, in the pandemic and uh, the kind of the crises over there and um, and it's it's kind of a fun. I include the link at the bottom of the editorial to the actual data, and it's it's worth if people are interested in it. It actually is worth taking a look at how um, they are able to put the lens of how other countries uh, see us and how we see them. It doesn't go through all the combinations, but it goes through a, a fair number of them, and. Uh, yeah, the bottom line is the United States uh, is not, as, as I invoke from the uh, 2012 line from the show The Newsroom, the United States is not the greatest nation in the world anymore. Hmm. Um, what is? Yeah, good question. <laughs> I, I have no idea at this point. Maybe there aren't any great nations left in the world anymore. I don't know, but uh, wow. Uh, it could be we're all just human after all. Um, Could be. Could be. Uh, <laughs> but uh you know i i i uh i think th- i think that it is interesting to look at kind of the view uh, that that is held of the united states by by other countries and uh, certainly you know that's that's why when i read your editorial this morning i said oh i got to get Steve to talk about that on the air today because uh you know that's it's it's important i mean it doesn't really i don't think necessarily affect you know the outcome of legislation in Congress, or, or or doesn't really seem to affect the president very much in terms of his own positions on things and the way he operates. But uh, it is a good a good way for I think just the average American citizen to to consider where how we're doing basically. Uh, and it's a it's a small form I guess of accountability in that respect. So uh, always a good thing for our elected officials. Um, I wonder, I wonder uh, well, yesterday on the show, I wanted to ask you about this. Yesterday on the show, uh, we kind of stumbled across, and maybe this has been reported elsewhere before. It seems kind of an obvious thing to get to, um, but it hadn't occurred to me before, and I kind of found it in the course of a interview I was having with uh, Tracy Dolan, the, uh, the uh, Deputy Commissioner of the Vermont Department of Health, 
uh, I was asking her about some of the coronavirus statistics in the state, and uh, she uh, was a little bit shy because she said, well, we have a, a, a statistics section of the health department, and I wouldn't, uh, she didn't want to delve into these too, uh, too heavily um, with, without checking with those folks first, uh, which is understandable. But the, um, the, the conclusion that I kind of came to in the course of the show with a little bit of help from her and, and, uh, and just basically doing some, some uh, fairly basic math was that if you were to take Vermont's uh, per capita death rate from the coronavirus, we've had 58 deaths in a state of uh, 624,000 people, um, and you were to sort of take that per capita rate and apply it to the United States as a whole, to the whole country, uh, the United States to date would have seen about 30,000 coronavirus deaths. Uh, instead, it's uh, pushing up to 200,000 or so. And um, I, I, do you think that those numbers tell any kind of a story, Steve? Well, they certainly, as we know, tell the story for Vermont. It doesn't feel like an apples to oranges comparison in a lot of ways. I mean, we want to be able to say that we wish it hadn't played out the way it did in the United States, but there were a lot of um, high population centers across the country that did not um, respond quickly enough and well enough. And, you know, we're very blessed to live where we live. There's no question about it. And the one time that our low population um, actually helps us is certainly when you know, there's a pandemic, and we're not all crammed into the the same small space that um, lots of folks are. So I think that Vermont is definitely the asterisk in this whole thing, and I think Dr. Fauci made that very clear yesterday that this was um, a kind of a remarkable achievement, and that we should be we should consider ourselves the envy of the nation, um, and. It, and it continues. I mean, it, it, it kind of defies logic a little bit every time I, every time I think that well, we've we've got a brace for the next part of this. Um, we keep proving that we actually can. Vermont can manage it pretty well, and that's you know it speaks volumes to our population. Um, there are a lot of people um, in other parts of the country that um, do not. Are just are not adhering to it or caring, and I don't know. Um, I mean, I think the numbers were going to be the numbers regardless. I think that we have a community here that is not just rural, but um, aware, cautious, um, you know, very thoughtful about uh, the needs of families and neighbors. And there's definitely handfuls of folks who are not but i think overall we're this is just an example of why we you know we're we're actually blessed to live where we live and how we live um, or as my brother down in massachusetts says vermonters have always been good at social distancing yeah right <laughs> um yeah i actually had a friend of mine say something similar and you know he was like it's it's not that and he's, he's a native vermonter and he said it's not mm-hmm. that i you know it's not that i'm social distancing i just don't like people and I was like, well, there you go. <laughs> so sometimes a little. Uh, but, uh, I, I don't know that it's you can apply a straight uh, percentage uh, scenario from what happened in Vermont to the rest of the country because I 
I just feel there are too many factors here that um, yeah. swayed. Well, and I will say Tracy Dolan and I discussed some of those yesterday. One is one is our, our low population density. Although any of these factors kind of pulled out in and of itself, you can always find a sort of contradictory argument. I mean, just for example, on the on the population density, um, I went to, to uh, look at some stats for South Dakota, which has significantly significantly lower uh, population per square mile. Vermont, by the way, is about sixty eight or sixty seven point nine. I think I saw. Um, the uh, South Dakota popula- population per square mile is 12, so less than a fifth of what Vermont is. Uh, South uh, Dakota deaths per 100,000, 21. Uh, Vermont deaths per 100,000, 9. So here we have a state with uh, uh, five times as much population density as South Dakota and uh, less than half the uh, the COVID deaths. So uh well, you know, but again, I think, but I would also argue that the trend there is that rural states tend to have lower percentages of deaths per capita in general, and mm-hmm. that definitely speaks to population density. Yeah, no, I I, I would agree with you there, uh, it, but but I guess what I'm saying is none of these uh, statistics really uh, nail the thing shut, uh, it's t- especially taken in isolation. You kind of have to add up many different factors. One thing that we, uh, have seen reported in many places is that, uh, African Americans and Hispanics are, are tending to, uh, contract the coronavirus more frequently than, uh, white people in the United States, um, and, and suffering worst results. A lot, a lot of that is tied to, uh, by many commentators have said, well, that's racism showing up in healthcare. Um, the um, which you know again, you'd have to really parse down and figure out the factors there. Uh, Vermont has a very uh, small number still of uh, Black and Hispanic residents, for instance, so that would tend to uh, keep our keep our rates down too. If those populations are more uh, more frequently affected by uh, by the coronavirus, so. Many factors at play, um, but clearly, as Anthony Fauci was saying yesterday when he visited virtually the governor's news conference on this, uh, the Vermont's been doing the right things and uh, needs to keep those up, meaning keep the masks up, but keep the social distancing going, keep the washing going, uh, all of these precautions that people have sort of now habitually worked into their daily lives around here, it seems, in, uh, in to a large degree. So... Uh, uh, let's see, we're about to go to a uh, break here for some bottom of the hour news. Uh, Steve Pappas is my guest. He's the editor of the Times, Argus, and Rutland Herald. We'll be back and continue our conversation on the other side of the break. itching to get out, explore our great state? Don your mask and come to the Warren store in the beautiful Mad River Valley. The store is open to a limited number of customers upstairs and down. Dilly takeout by phone or window, but you can finally choose beer, wine, chips, etc. No appointment needed upstairs. Well stocked with cool summer clothing, cards, candles, bags, and jewelry, puzzles and toys for all ages, art supplies, books, and interactive learning games. Are your kids bored and driving you crazy? Bring them to the Warren store. Practicing all safe protocols. Masks required. Now back to the Dave Graham Show on WDEV FM and AM. 
My guest is uh, Steve Pappas. He's the editor and publisher of the Times Argus and Rutland Herald. And uh, Steve, uh, I've kind of beaten this one to death on the show because we had a whole segment on on Friday. But I just have to tell you that uh, there was something I think I saw you editorialize about that over the weekend, which um, I think we disagree. And that is the uh, the role of Bob Woodward in in his um, publication of this book, Rage, that, that came out uh, yesterday, Tuesday. Um, and his saving for the book some information based on interviews he had with on the record recorded interviews he had with President Trump. Um, and there are arguments out there, I think, including from you, that the uh, that those uh, the, the revelations contained in those interviews should have come out immediately back in February and March. Uh, I'm more okay with him having saved them up for the book and. Uh, so go ahead. Give me your best shot. Why Why do you think he was wrong to hold on to this stuff? Well, because there's been a significant amount of public interest in who knew what when. And if we do know that there was a modicum of truth um, in this, and, you know, again, he's saying he didn't know because this president um, has a tendency to be a little fast and loose with the truth sometimes and with the facts, um, I get that you need to fact check, but there was plenty of opportunity um, between February and April for him to do that. And um, this was, in, in my mind, information that uh, the public needed to know. If if we as journalists sat on information that we knew that Dr. Levine um, knew that there were outbreaks or there there was something you know going on beyond was in the norm and we sat on that information because we wanted to roll it out in some kind of a um, self-promotional marketing campaign um, for profit um, I think readers and audience would be really irritated that we we took um, a position of withholding information that really is of great public interest and I, I understand how this works and I know you know I know plenty of people who um, friends who are journalists who have written books and they do withhold information for the purposes of being able to have something, you know, a hook to something to talk about during uh, the lead up and the publicity and all of those things. And you, you want it to be salacious. But, you know, my argument in the editorial was this is somebody who is was considered iconic to uh, in, in, an, in an inspiration to a lot of people who wanted to become journalists and they were very idealistic in what they wanted to do and they did it in a way that you know they, they went to school and they've learned the rules and um, they've they've been they've had their ethics tested and they've you know they have had their objectivity tested and you know they they are you know I I acknowledge that I, even I was a disciple of, of Bob Woodward and Carl mm-hmm. Bernstein and um, and I do not think that um, if any good journalist, I don't care if you're an independent contractor, a freelancer, or a paid staffer, if you know something that the public needs to know, um, and I think that in this case the public needed to understand that, that this president was tamping down public panic because he understood that there was a significant threat Um I don't know. It feels wrong to me. I said so in an editorial. I've gotten a fair amount of pushback. You're, you're not. I, I saw, you know, I saw that you and I differed. 
mm-hmm. uh, on that opinion. And, uh, uh, you know, I've had a handful of people say to me, you know, you're, you're being too hard on him. And, uh, you know, if I'm going to make a buck, I'm not going to make a buck on the deaths of, I certainly don't want to be making it on, on the backs of the, the families who lost people to COVID because we could have, you know, I don't know what we could have done, but armed with information, you're certainly in a better position to leverage change. Uh, I want to say first off that um, I find this argument that Woodward had to wait, and his argument that he had to wait until May or something to confirm a lot of what the president was saying to be a little thin. Um, uh, so this is going to sound for a minute like I'm siding with you on the, all the, on the overall question, Steve. Um, but I, I think Wood, I think Woodward's excuse here is very thin. In fact, it doesn't really make sense in an environment where the, you know, as a matter of routine daily coverage, the 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 um, uh, the president says things all the time which uh, appear like they may not check out and. The newspapers run stories within minutes on their websites, and certainly in the next, by the next day's print editions, uh, saying that the president made some statement on Wednesday, and um, you know, and he made it without evidence, or it appeared to contradict the record in the following respects. And you know, they 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 are frequently uh, going going ahead and uh, and you know in one paragraph acting like the old-fashioned journalistic stenographer here's what the public official said and then in the next paragraph saying by the way what the public official said looks like it's <clears throat> um, a pile of organic fertilizer so uh, the the uh, <laughs> I, I, so I, I don't buy this idea that if you're talking in an on-the-record conversation with the president of the United States and the president is making statements to you, that you somehow you know have a duty to go verify what he's saying. Uh, that's his job. You know, the, I mean, I really think we need to hold our politicians to a much higher. Uh, and and I think I think that's to a degree what's what's happening here. That you know the media become much more aggressive about pointing out the. Now, as the Washington Post, re- Post reports, more than 20,000 mistruths this president has uttered since taking office. Um, so I, I, I just I think that is uh, I don't really buy that argument from Woodward. My sense of the, the the argument that I would have put up with if I were him would have gone like this. I would have said, well, I used to be a reporter for the Washington Post. I retired from that active role several years ago. I'm in my 70s now. I'm working on my 19th book. I've been a book writer for a long time. I'm not really a daily reporter anymore. Uh, I think that books have value in and of themselves. They are an art form unto themselves, and that uh, their integrity and their uh, purpose also is important. I don't mean to denigrate daily journalism at all. Certainly would uh, be okay with the idea that somebody in a daily newspaper uh, was out there uh, in February and March, you know, doing the job that, that I used to do. Uh, wouldn't mind if somebody were out there questioning the president's veracity. And by the way, many, many people were. I mean, that's what I, I really find to be Somewhat remarkable about all this is if the president, the president's comments to Woodward had been reported, uh, the world would have changed. That seems to be the argument, and, and and I frankly think that if the president's comments had been reported in the context of just another daily story, that the uh, the president would have called him fake news. All of his supporters would have called him fake news, uh, and six hours later there'd be a new scandal. So. 
um, <clears throat> you know, that, and that's pretty much the way, uh, major news stories have unfolded and then been swallowed up in the Orwellian memory hole that counts for national media these days, uh, uh, you know, really literally within a matter of hours, sometimes if not a couple of days. So I don't know. I, I, I'm, that's where I come down on this thing. And, and I do think, I do respect the process of writing a book, which is what Woodward is about these days and was about in this project. Uh, I don't really think he, um, owed that much yet anymore to his daily reporting duties. Uh, have I got all that wrong, Steve? No, you're, you're right. And I, and I, well, your facts are right. I disagree with you on the, on the premise of this, but that's okay. We can agree to disagree. Sure. Um, uh, you know, I, Margaret Sullivan, who um, is uh, writes about the media for the Post, um, wrote uh, and is a regular columnist. She actually has written a book that that came out recently about um, the role of newspapers and 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 how there are more news deserts and how we as a society have changed as an audience of what we can, what we're interested in, what we tolerate, and what we're willing to pay for. And um, and while she talks about the factors that go into the demise of the newspaper, she very much talks about how um, you know the the crux of uh, any of any understanding of an issue and the, the open discussion and uh, kind of the impact on a broader audience needs to happen in print media. And you know, of course, I'm going to be the first guy who stands up and says, you know, go Margaret. That's exactly what needed to happen. But, um, you know, I, I, I agree with her um, that that we need to have those levels of journalism and arming people with, with information. Um, you know, Woodward's books are, they are based on fact, but there's a, a fair amount of, um, he takes a fair amount of liberty, as do a lot of nonfiction writers of, um, you know, filling in the gaps and creating a narrative around situations, which is fine, but that's not what, what journalism is about. Even at the local yeah. level, it's about chronicling what's going on in a community and what those impacts are. Conversely, well, Margaret Sullivan was 100% right in her column the day after um, the, the post in, interview with Woodward to rip him a new one in, in my mind, and I, I quote the her column in my editorial in that, um, you know, she just doesn't quite, she doesn't understand that disconnect either, that somebody who has made their career of being kind of the ultimate journalist, I mean, there aren't too many journalists that people uh, you know, across the board can point to and, and, and say a name and know it's a household name, and Bob Woodward is one of them. And yep. um, she's absolutely right to say, you know, you're, you're writing this book under the auspices of the reputation that you have as had as a reporter and as a writer, and now with The Post, by the way, and that now you are very openly just using information to line your own pockets to, to profit and um, that does not speak well of journalists in my mind that is a reflection on 
um, journalist because people do not equate that distinction that you were just pointing out, that he's an excellent book writer, um, mm-hmm. but he's a former journalist. Um, yep. People just yep. want to be able to say, well, see, that's exactly why you can't trust the news media, because they're withholding information, they're censoring information, they can't be, you know, they're not ethical, they're not integrous, and all that right. is not, so we, <laughs> none of those things are, are true. You know, all the things, yeah. the work that journalists are trying to do right now in saving newspapers and doing the work that we're doing as far as being at the center of community and community building should not be eroded by someone like Bob Woodward, who knows better. Yep. Steve, i got to break in. Uh, I wanted to get a listener in uh, to the conversation here. Rama from Williamstown is calling in. Good morning, Rama. Yeah, good morning. Hey, listen, I just want to remind folks, the real outrage isn't what Woodward told us or didn't tell us. The real outrage is the fact that we have Trump, who sits in the office of President of the United States of America, and not only blames everybody else for everything that goes even the slightest bit wrong where he can be criticized at all. I mean, he's just such a whiny little baby about it. But on top of that, uh, he literally he, he was committing homicide by knowingly going out there, even though he knew the dangers of the COVID pandemic and he knew the dangers of COVID-19. He deliberately went out there and told his cult members who he knew would follow and hang on his every word to gather together without masks and to be breathing and spitting and coughing and yelling and shouting with each other inside enclosed spaces, and he's still doing it. You know, Charles, uh, who was that, Uh, Manson, Charles Manson, way back in, uh, what now, the 1970s, is it? Uh, 69. was that was when the murders happened. Wow, yeah. okay, yeah. He was convicted of murder, and not because he took part in any of the murders directly, but because he was a cult leader who got his cult followers to go out and do these murders for him. Uh, in the same way, Trump is just as guilty of homicide because he's bringing people together into these tight and closed spaces. He knows the physical danger, and he's still letting encourage. He's telling them, come do it. So, no, the outrage isn't about Woodward. The outrage is about Trump and the Republican Party and the Vermont Republican Party that just keeps supporting him. So, I, you know, right. I, I'm not I'm nonplussed by Woodward. Private citizens can do what they want, not the President of the United States. Thanks for the call, Rama. Appreciate it. Uh, don't, get, well, don't get me wrong, Rama. Yeah. Um, I, I totally agree that, that that this president has acted irresponsibly um, as far as all of that is concerned. And I think the first line of my editorial has something to, says something to the effect of, I, it's hard to know where to be more outraged. And um, in this particular case, I was just, I'm not saying that Woodward did something worse than the president. I'm just pointing out that... Um, in the editorial that there there is an angle to this thing which is about making sure that journalists and and people who people who do know how this process works act act like they know what the greater good is so uh before we go to our next call i want to ask you steve so Suppose I, you know, I worked for the Associated Press for more than 30 years. I was the bulk of my my career here in Vermont journalism and occasionally had uh, national stories on the AP wire and stuff, and as AP reporters do. And, and uh, 
uh, left the AP at the end of uh, 2016, beginning of 17, and um, uh, so and, uh, I um, wonder if Woodward, who's in his 70s and certainly his retirement age, and had a long career with the Post, and and is you know he still has his editor title, but it's really just an honorary thing. It's like an emeritus professor or something. Um, he um, the analogous thing to me would be that if I came across an important piece of news, I guess I, I should call my old AP bureau and and file a story. Um, is that right, or or what do you think? Yeah, of course. I mean, okay. I'm a news guy. Of course, I'm going to say that, Dave. You know, <laughs> I don't think I don't think that's my whole point. Is I don't think anybody should be sitting on information. The, the president may have been wrong. And usually the argument is don't shoot the messenger if you don't like the message. And this boy, shoot the messenger because he didn't deliver the message. Okay. Hey, uh, let's go to uh, Paula from Brookfield. Good morning, Paula. Good morning. Um, I was just wondering if anybody had considered that possibly Bob Woodward um, was trying to be a patriot in taking down another president whom he perceived as being a danger to the country because he has spoken out about those kinds of things before. And I'll listen to your response. Bye-bye. Well, we'll follow up. Um, so, so Margaret Sullivan's column asked Woodward that specifically, that, that he, and he acknowledged that, that, that this book is what he feels like is building a case for why this president is unfit for office. Um, so I think mm-hmm. that... That, that Woodward is taking that broader approach, and that that is the that is definitely the push on the, that he's taken. Which I also allude to in the editorial is, well, you know, that's not exactly cool either. But um, to me, to me, the bigger issue was um, that we could have had we could have been having a more meaningful discussion about certain parts of this earlier in the process. Marsha from Barry's calling in. Good morning, Marsha. Morning, Dave, and good morning to Steve, and thanks for taking my call. I just wanted to say first that I agree wholeheartedly with Raman, and um, you know I think I think Trump has blood on his hands, and but but to go back to the original reason, I you and Steve at at. at Expressed the reason that I said 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 to you about a week or two ago that Bob Wood would I feel did have some kind of a duty to ex- express what he knew in some way to warn people. I feel mm-hmm. that he I feel that he had plenty of uh, plenty of ways to ver- verify what he heard. Yep. And you right. didn't have have to wait till a long time. I do agree with Steve wholeheartedly. And um, okay, Marsha, I got to go, but I thank you for the call. I I, I I wanted to get your vote in there. I have a feeling I'm being outvoted this morning, and that's that's okay. Let's bring in uh, Fred from Newbury. Uh, Fred, just a couple of minutes to go here. Uh, Trump can't win because he won't get the black vote. He won't get the brown vote. He won't get the woman vote. He won't get the youth vote. You won't get the LBGT vote. You won't get the liberal vote. Trump is toast. <laughs> okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we'll, uh, we'll check back with you on November 4th and see how you did there, Fred. That's quite a, uh, quite a prediction. And, uh, 
You know, I, I, Yogi, Yogi Bear, I guess. Air, Dave, that it's going to be November 4th? I'm sorry, say again? I said, do you want to lay a bet here on the air that it's actually going to have results on November 4th? Actually, I don't. Right. <laughs> as, as, <laughs> as, you, as Yogi Berra said, what was it something about I, I can, I, you can't predict the future or something like that? Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, you know, uh, if you can't predict the future, then you really can't predict because, well, anyway. Uh, Steve, um, well, but go ahead. What do you think, Steve? Are we going to have a, are we going to have results by Thanksgiving? Well, by Thanksgiving, I, I, I do think that we'll have um, some kind of a decision by Thanksgiving, but I think we're going to be tied up in the courts for quite a few weeks. I bet it's I bet it's mid November before we have results. Okay, that's uh, that's uh, that's a good prediction. I I would tend to concur with that. I think uh, I think it's going to be a a uh, a really uh, difficult election. And especially when one side is saying that he can't lose without without it being rigged, that is uh, I've never seen that in sports. I've never seen it in politics before. That's a really weird attitude with which to approach a contest of any sort. And uh, so there you go. Well, Steve Pappas, uh, editor of the Times, Arcus and Rutland Herald, has been my guest. I really uh, thank you very much uh, for, for joining me this morning, and uh, always good talking with you. Yeah, same. Alrighty, uh, let's go to that uh, top of the hour farewell for this uh, Wednesday morning on the Dave Graham Show here on WDEV FM and AM. Thanks for listening, everybody. Don't forget to do so again tomorrow morning around 9 o'clock. And uh, meanwhile, stay tuned for uh, Bill Sayer Common Sense Radio here on the Friendly Pioneer. Have a good afternoon, everybody.